and that's what we need to have. We need to have this kind of awakening of consciousness. But if someone's just throwing stats down your throat or whatever that you don't really understand, you can't really comprehend, then you're not really going to act and you're not going to have that mindset shift that we all need. What's the difference between data going nowhere and evidence that drives change? How do we present a story to not just impact the lives of a few, but millions of people? Today's guest answers big questions where the stakes have never been higher. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode five of season two. I'm your host, as always, Ben Bradbury. And today's interview is going to be a lot of fun. But before we do that, let's just remind ourselves what we're going to be learning today. We're going to be getting a new way of thinking about or understanding the world and ourselves. And that is a mental model. Today's mental model And if you want to listen to the last episode where we dive into this in detail, we're going to be exploring the difference between rigid and fluid thinking. Rigid thinking locks us into one view of reality, whereas fluid thinking keeps us flexible, adaptable, and persistent. And today's episode is going to help you make better decisions by learning from our guest and how she applied the difference between rigid and fluid thinking to a range of her own experiences that go all the way from impacting the lives personally on a one-to-one basis of people, all the way up to shaping movements that could impact millions. But before we do that, before we go any further, let's introduce today's guest. Driven by the idea that we all have the ability to be the change, Kate Sandal spends her time encouraging others to do more. As the Director of Programs and Engagement at B-Lab UK, Kate works with businesses to measure and improve their environmental and social impact. Since the launch of the B Corporation, or B Corp for short, movement in the UK, Kate has been building the community of companies who are reinventing business. There are over 3,200 certified B Corps globally from 150 industries and 70 countries, including The Body Shop, Patagonia, and Innocent. Kate works with existing B Corps to deliver campaigns to champion a new operating system for capitalism and create events to strengthen the community. Prior to B Lab UK, Kate worked for Sir Ronald Cohen, known as the father of social investment, at the Portland Trust, promoting peace and stability in Israel and Palestine. She coordinated and delivered programs to aid economic development, focusing on the power of business to create change. Kate is also a founding director of Business Declares, a new volunteer-led network launched to encourage and enable business to deliver a climate emergency and commit to meaningful action. She is also on the advisory board of an alcohol-free beer, Freester, and a judge on several awards covering tech, film, and art. Kate has a Master's of Science in Social Business and Entrepreneurship from the London School of Economics and Politics and has a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations from the University of Leeds. Let's start today by hearing one of the interesting ways that Kate has approached her decisions. One of the interesting decisions I made when I graduated and got my first kind of full-time job was to, although my full-time job was closer to my family home, 
to move away from that and do a reverse commute. So give myself an hour and 10 minute commute a day just so I could live in the centre of London, which first of all gave me independence for the first time in my life. But also it was a really conscious decision to kind of make my life harder, but because I knew that's what I really wanted. So understanding that everything's kind of got trade-offs and actually can't have everything all at the same time. And if I want to live in it's London Bridge on Bermondsey Street. So if I want to live there, then actually there's got to be some compromises. Kate's approach here does two things. Firstly, she's engaging in a conscious decision to make her environment hard. This isn't something that was just foisted upon her by accident. This was an intentional lifestyle choice. But secondly, this removes the expectation of having to have it all, of having to make it and instead focus on one thing. And so if you're thinking about a big decision that you might have to make, think about what some of these trade-offs might actually look like. The weightlifting world champion, Jerzy Gregoric, has this great quote, easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. I think I had been thrown a few curveballs in my upbringing that definitely made my life harder and more interesting. But then I think it's always formed me into a more resilient person. And I think in the same vein as that quote, the harder it is, the bigger the rewards. And so for me, I knew how much I was going to love enjoying living in Bermondsey Street. And therefore that would always counterbalance what I wanted to do. And I think if you're not willing to take those leaps, then you're probably not going to get those returns. And I'm probably always the person who goes for the harder option, but I also know that it's going to be more rewarding in the end. The important thing to point out here is that the leaps that Kate mentioned are completely subjective. Whatever the raising of difficulty needs to be for you, whatever that challenge needs to be, is up to you. But the important thing is to make things a little bit harder than they'll actually be in real life. And for an example of that, let's go back just over a hundred years to New South Wales in Australia, where a small boy is playing alone in his garden. And he's playing the game of cricket except it's not exactly a normal setup. You see, remember, the boy is completely alone, so there's no one to bowl the ball at him. He has to throw the ball at a corrugated wall, so a wall with lots of bumps, and every time he throws it, the wall's curves shoot the ball off randomly at a different angle. It's a very difficult game. But that's not all, because the little boy isn't trying to hit a big cricket ball. He's trying to hit a tiny golf ball. Under these tough conditions, the boy practices relentlessly for a decade. He loves this game. And if you need any proof that practicing under harder conditions produces better results, listen to his record. Age 12, he has his first school game. He scores 115 runs, not out. By his third ever game, the opposing captain refuses to field a team if he's selected. After a 20-year career in test cricket, now a man, Donald Bradman's batting average was an astounding 99.94, just a hair short of averaging 100 runs per game. And just like Kate, Don Bradman consciously decided to make his experience in training harder so that real life becomes easier. So we can learn from this by giving ourselves regular small challenges so that when we are actually challenged, we do have to rise to the occasion. It's comparatively that much easier to execute. This is the principle of delayed gratification as well. 
suffer now or sacrifice now for better payoff later. But if raising difficulty makes us strong, on the other hand, there's one thing that's going to make us weak, and that is expectations. I had um, an idea and an expectation of what my adult life would look like. And I was going to be living in central London. I was going to be working in central London. And I was just going to be nailing it in my career. Uh, it wasn't happening like that. In fact, I, I graduated in 2009. And, you know, it's a tail end of the recession. It was hard. I'd tried to kind of get into kind of politics, working, um, applied for some internships at Chatham House, which is kind of the, the biggest foreign policy think tank. Um, and that hadn't worked out. And I'd ended up getting or taking a job that I initially turned down, actually, that was closer to my family home. And I took the job, but I thought, God, I'm not going to sacrifice everything. I still have this idea I'm going to live in central London. And so I knew that I had to kind of succeed at one part of that plan that I had kind of created in my head. And if it meant kind of a longer commute and probably more on travel, then I was just going to do it. I was kind of quite determined to achieve elements of, of my kind of plan that was all thrown up anyway in the end because you can't really plan your life that well. Notice how Kate was able to fluidly adapt to the goal that she had. Initially, it was the expectation of this fixed goal of living and working in central London, this dream that she had, and not being able to achieve that off the tail end of the recession that caused her strife. So what did she do? She was fluid in how she achieved that. She gave herself a reverse commute working outside the city, yes, but she achieved part of it by moving to London. And so we can learn by that by focusing on small wins, small successes. If we can win just one part of the plan, in Kate's words, then we're handling what we can actually control. There's no pressure to get everything right first time round. If Kate had solely focused on living and working in London, executing a very rigid plan, she would have failed. And in that same vein, this is why expectation, one fixed view of reality, is the enemy. In life, we have these expectations and we set these goals and it's understanding that those goals aren't fixed and that actually they change. And often it's the, I think the word journey at the moment is being torn apart and everyone hates it, but it's that process to get to that end goal. That's the interesting part that you need to focus on. But also just knowing that sometimes it takes time and you'll get there in the end if you're patient and you, you trust yourself, that you know yourself well enough that actually you'll know when to move and when not to move. Kate has just given us two excellent solutions to the problem of expectation and over-planning. Firstly, patience. Knowing that things will work out in the end massively lowers the barrier to getting it right first time round. If you're struggling in what you're doing in the day or the week, think about how much progress you've made in the last year. And secondly, is trust. And this is something I've very much had to learn over the last year or so, but trusting myself enough to know that I'll make the right call and that I don't need all the answers has been insanely liberating. Because the thing is, as we discussed last episode, life is going to throw us a lot of unknown unknowns. These are the things that you don't know, you don't know. And there's plenty that you're going to come up against. I would argue most of what is in your future, you don't know you don't know right now. And there's no plan we can make that accounts for them. But if we learn from Kate, we can keep our plans fluid and keep ourselves flexible in how we reach our goals. There's a difference between being fluid in our execution 
but being disciplined in our principles. And one of the values that is quite unwavering for Kate is precision. Earlier, Kate said the word journey is being torn apart. Let's find out exactly why. I was at a conference in Amsterdam where uh, there was a journalist who kind of talked about it and, and highlighted the fact that everyone uses the word journey. Everyone says they want a journey. And actually, what does that really mean? And it's kind of my interpretation that often it's a bit of a, a cop-out. It's a word that's easy to interlace some things and say, oh, we're not there yet. We're on a journey. We're on a journey. And actually, we need to be more explicit especially if we're saying things in the world that I work in, what are your aims? What are your objectives? And how do you, what are your points that you're going to get there? There's a lot of words in our language that often we use nonchalantly and we don't really reflect on, on what that means or why we use it. I think it's just, you know, again, I suppose I'm coming back to being incredibly reflective, but it's just being conscious of the language that we're using. There is a difference then in being fluid in how we achieve those goals and being very explicit about what they actually are. Kate believes that this explicit stating of where we are actually going, saying what are our aims, is incredibly important for each of us, and even more so for companies, as we'll see in just a little bit later and how they create impact. But for us, a good test of giving our goals and tasks definable objectives is giving them a definition of done, or a DOD. And you can think of the DOD as Could a stranger objectively say whether you have actually accomplished this task or not? If they can't, if there's any kind of gray area, then perhaps you're not being explicit enough in the goal that you have actually set. So if being precise with our language matters, what difference can our choice of words and how we choose to tell our story actually make? When people ask me what I do for a living and I I start off with I'm trying to make companies more responsible, which is not particularly insightful for anyone. I'm trying to change capitalism. And then that kind of either people walk away or their ears are are pricked and think, wow, that's bold. She's never going to do that. And and they're right. I am never going to do that. But together with my colleagues, with like-minded organizations, the world is shifting and the world is changing. And this understanding of this purpose of business is being upended. So on a fundamental level for businesses, their purpose is actually changing. And this is one of the big things that Kate and her company, B-Lab, are evangelizing. But notice here how there's one sticky idea above all others that people can latch onto. We're trying to change capitalism. That's thought-provoking. Because being responsible, just saying, oh, we're trying to be more responsible, that could mean a hundred different things. Are you trying to be more responsible for your kids, for your work, for the upkeep of your home? But capitalism is relatable. That's the key factor here, relatability. Most people are familiar with the idea of capitalism. And especially if they live in a society where capitalism is the engine, the idea resonates with their existing context. And it's this subtle distinction that shows why our choice of language matters. We're not trying to be responsible. We're trying to change capitalism. Can you see how those are very different emotions, very different stories that are being shared? It's not just what we say, but how we say it. And perhaps the biggest learning for me from what Kate shared is that this precision of language matters not only with others, but the words we use in telling our own story to ourselves. As Kate shows those stories often start 
with a well-phrased question. I always had this idea, actually, from, from the moment of graduating, which is trying to find my place in the world, so trying to work at um, a think tank, trying to work in Middle Eastern politics, but also just seeing, like, where, where else could I have an impact? Where else could I create change? And realizing, and I had this kind of light bulb moment where I thought, wonder if Shell would pay me to run a program in a country where it's extracting oil and it to benefit the local community that may have been displaced or whatever. And they would be compensated for that displacement. And then Shell could use it as a marketing tactic to make them look good. And that's essentially what corporate social responsibility is kind of morphed into. But I didn't know it at the time and it didn't really exist. And it was that's the kind of the, the slow kind of turning and understanding that actually change and social change doesn't have to be led by government or, or charities, that actually businesses have an impact on society as well. And therefore, they have a responsibility to, to enable that change. The stories we tell ourselves to shape our behaviour often start with a higher cause, one central purpose-driven question or thought that can guide our ideas. And in Kate's case, it was asking, where can I create change? But notice that her light bulb moment, the moment where she actually practically applied that question, was fluid. She thought outside the box in how she could actually create that change by running a program for a third-party company to benefit local communities. Notice as well how there's a bigger principle here to apply fluid thinking. In that change doesn't have to come from charities only, businesses can make a significant impact as well. In my opinion, that's taking the principle of change that is so often associated with charities and for charitable enterprises and actually taking that into the business context. That's a new way, a new vehicle to approach that change. So again, the central goal is defined being impact, but we are fluid about how we can actually achieve it. Now, having precise language doesn't just matter with the story that we tell ourselves or in one-to-one conversations. Kate is also highly intentional about using language to help her community find common points of relatability. You could say one stat or fact to someone and it doesn't make a difference because it's just not in their interest or it's not in their history or experience. And so what we need to understand is that everyone has their different angle that they can explore. And actually one of the the articles I wrote before, I kind of created this open source spreadsheet, which was taking all the different areas that exist. So looking at food production, looking at waste, looking at water, looking at climate, looking at forests, looking at wine, you know, what is the thing that's going to spark the interest and how do you therefore have that information to read or to understand? And then that can spark an interest in something else and the realization that everything that we do is all interdependent, right? So the interdependence is a kind of a, what we talk about at B-Lab and this idea that we're interconnected, right? So if I have a bad day, my team will probably know about it, right? Which might then affect their day, which then might affect their housemate's day, which might then affect. So that understanding that the way that we talk or the things that we do all affect each other. So 
picking a topic that someone has an interest in and whether that's wine production, they really enjoy a good French, I don't know, Sauvignon Blanc or something. And then the realisation that actually with the direction that we're having towards climate change, that England is actually going to become the best wine producer rather than France in the relatively near future because of the soil, because of the temperature, for lots of different reasons. And so, God, that's, if, if someone's like, wow, I had never even thought about wine being affected by climate change, what else would be affected? You know, it starts that conversation. And I think it's very hard to be prescriptive of what that one thing is, but there are just so many different elements and it's just understanding what that interest is for someone to be able to spark it and then to realise the, um, the knock-on effects. And that's what we need to have. We need to have this kind of awakening of consciousness. But if someone's just throwing stats down your throat or whatever that you don't really understand, you can't really comprehend, then you're not really going to act and you're not going to have that mindset shift that we all need. Everyone will have their own story that supports or contradicts the raw facts. But Kate's story shows us that by using different interests to raise awareness of climate change, we could do something similar. If we need to raise interest in our particular movement, in our story, we need to find the perspectives or the point of perspective that overlaps with our audience's values and the existing context they already have. What we're trying to do here is find these common points of entry that allow us to create relatability. So we're essentially saying, here's a door you can walk through to find out more on your own terms. But the shared value, the shared context is the door. An understanding that everything is connected, that all actions ripple into each other, creates a far smaller barrier to entry to actually impact others with our ideas. All you need to do is find a shared value. In Kate's words, that one thing that sticks. And that shared value, that one thing becomes your vehicle that you use to find the common points of relatability to share your story and pass on your message. But there's a problem here. In today's connected world, where we should be able to relate more than ever, some of us feel more disparate and disconnected than ever. Why are we struggling to create that connection? I've been reflecting a little bit actually recently on on current modes of communication. So uh, a friend of mine was in China and I sent her an email and this is my best friend from, from school. And I wrote her an email and I thought, wow, what was the last time I wrote a personal long email to someone that wasn't WhatsApp, that wasn't a Facebook messenger, that wasn't a work email, but it was a really reflective email for me to articulate my feelings and to tell her what's going on and ask questions about, about her life. And it's a real consideration, I think, that society today no longer reflects that much. So we don't really write letters anymore. We don't really write long personal emails. We instant message each other all the time. It's immediate. And actually, everyone is always so so determined to kind of get that immediate message or get that immediate response or to be occupied the whole time. And actually, I think we all need to just take some time out and reflect a little bit more and make sure that we're we're kind of processing and understanding what's happening to us instead of sleepwalking into so many different situations that we haven't really processed. So I think that was a really big realization for me is that actually our modes of communication have changed and I don't know whether that's for the better. So New Year's resolution was to write more letters. 
Kate's story shows us that this problem, this lack of reflection, isn't a problem for any one of us individually. We're not guilty. It's a systemic issue. Society doesn't reflect that much, and it is made that much harder by the technology that we have. And in Kate's words, we end up sleepwalking through life. This lack of reflection makes us miss the subtleties in a situation, which could be a cause of rigid, one-dimensional thinking in the end. Kate also points out our modes of communication have changed. Exchanges are quicker, hotter, and exist in a more fiery climate today. This makes it harder to engage in cool, calm reflection. And that's why, again, it's not just what we choose to say that matters, but how we choose to say it. Actually writing something that's directly to that person, especially if it's on pen and paper, for them to keep. And yes, they could copy it or they could do whatever they want, but that's the purpose. It's directly for them. Whereas I think a video or voice note can be shared around. Again, it's very immediate and there might be an element of reflection, but it's generally all about, especially voice notes, you know, they're just part of a conversation, which, you know, allows a little bit of reflection, but not really to kind of take a moment and and sit down. You know, I send voice notes when I'm on the move and I'm too busy to type rather than just, or, you know, sometimes if I've got a longer rambling message, probably that would, they would, my friends would prefer I wrote in, in shorter language, but it seems like there's a different purpose and the intentionality behind it, you know, pen and paper, sitting down, dedicating some time just for that person. So think about the choice of communication that you're using. The highly engaging video and audio medium, of course, has its place, but they're inherently less reflective. And the word that we can focus on, that we can actually learn a lot from Kate, I believe, is being intentional about sharing messages with others. One of my new favorite Christmas activities from this past year was writing Christmas letters first in Evernote and then drafting them and redrafting them again until I have something I'm really, truly happy with. And this is being intentional and precise about the language and message that I use. And it's wholly satisfying seeing my friends and family open their cards on Christmas when I've invested the time in making sure that that message is really special. But also this habit of intentionality might mean sharing messages with ourselves. And that's why building up a habit of reflecting, as we talked about last episode, taking a step back and exploring the intricacies of our experience can help us connect the dots or find the decision that we might have been overlooking. Sometimes just going for that long walk sitting with our thoughts in the empty moments might produce the breakthrough that we need. As Francis Bacon once said, silence is the sleep that nourishes wisdom. I asked Kate, what question would you give for people, whether business owners or employees in another business, to reflect on if they are trying to see their business differently and see it for the vehicle of change that it can be? I have an immediate answer to this, which is quite interesting because it's quite a, it's a brilliant question. And the reason why I have an immediate answer is because last year we created a video and the video was entitled, and I think this is what my question would be, which is, what will be your legacy? Is it for returning profits to shareholders year after year? Is that what your family are going to be proud of? Is that what you're proud of? Or is it doing something else? Is it, is it challenging? Is it, is it something like paying the living wage or whatever it is. But, you know, there's different things for different people, not the same thing won't work for everyone. So actually a really open-ended question like, what will be your legacy allows people to reflect on what's important to them. 
And this idea of knowing what's important to us, knowing the legacy that we are actually going to carry forward, actually does place the idea of expectation back into the game. Now, I know up till now I've said expectation is the enemy, but as always with subject matter, there is more than one side to the story. The All Blacks rugby team carry the weight of a nation every time they play. They have the rugby legacy. And they also train under pressure like Don Bradman. Their coaches put the scrum half under pressure every training session by telling him, the team is going to score against you in training, just so you know. That's a kind of unnecessary pressure, the unnecessary challenge that makes someone go from good to great. Now, it goes without saying they have one of the most impressive legacies in sporting history. But they don't turn away from this expectation. The weight of the nation that has carried on them every time that they play, they embrace it. Their former head coach, Graham Henry, said, The history of All Blacks rugby has been so successful that the expectation in New Zealand is that we win every test. And I think that is good for the team. If we didn't have that expectation, I'm sure we wouldn't reach the standards we do. As Kate has already pointed out, it's up to you and I to make real difference in the world. And if we're being honest, when it comes to the impact driven by the initiatives that Kate is championing and other great initiatives that are putting our planet first, the stakes are pretty high. But just like the All Blacks, we can embrace this expectation. This is a legacy to live up to, in my opinion. As Jonah Lomu, one of the greatest All Blacks ever, once said, we hate coming second place to ourselves. It's very likely that the All Blacks will bear their rugby legacy for years to come. And with their mindset embracing expectation, they're preparing for a future that's going to unfold many, many years ahead today. But as we've learned from Kate already, companies are hugely significant vehicles for sparking change, but they face a real problem when it comes to making their own long-term decisions for the future. If you're a publicly listed company, a lot of the time you have to do quarterly reporting back to your shareholders. So if you're constantly having to report quarterly and you're trying to make a long-term investment, and that investment you know is not going to show dividends until, if you're lucky, a year, but actually five years, maybe 10 years, how do you justify that? And how do you offset it? Whereas actually, if you've got investors who understand that actually this is an investment that happens and you know that our profits are going to be down this quarter or the next quarter or for a year. But we know that once once that investment's paying those dividends, then actually we can create a huge amount of change. But when we sit in this kind of quarterly reporting challenge, then then we need to really think about what the results are as a um, as a consequence. So this kind of quarterly reporting locks companies into rigid short-term returns. And in a weird sense, it's actually over planning as well. Because even though it's across a very short time span, expecting to hit certain financial targets every quarter nullifies the ability to take longer term bets. As Kate said, knowing that your profits might be down one quarter, but you're investing for the long term future doesn't sit well with a group of shareholders who are expecting growth quarter on quarter. And if quarterly planning is rigid and inflexible, then longer-term thinking is what we need because this is much more fluid. Kate points to the example of Unilever, who've moved to annual reporting. This means that there's a quarter of the profit-driven check-ins that other publicly listed companies have to ascribe to, 
and far more space for them to take bigger bets, which might not appear profitable in the short term, but could have a real huge impact longer term. So why does this matter for us? The truth is, we all need to take long-term risks in our own lives. These are the decisions like where we choose to work, where we choose to live, the people we decide to invest in. And not only that, but as we've already learned, there's always more unknown unknowns, things we don't know that we don't know. And over-planning is going to stifle you if you attempt to address all of these challenges that you just can't see up front. On the other hand, remaining fluid is like a breath of fresh air, like winding down the window on a stuffy car ride. It relieves the pressure of needing to know exactly how you're going to get there and allows you to take things one step at a time. Unlike over-planning, which never, ever, ever meets our expectations, Kate's kind of thinking also has another big benefit. It grounds us by making us more realistic. I think life experience teaches you probably to be more realistic because especially if you set your expectations so high, you know, it's very hard to kind of keep meeting them and then that kind of could lead to disappointment. But the other thing is just being willing to iterate and being willing to change your mind and to change your perspective and understand that it's life and life throws you curveballs all the time. So if you keep changing, you keep iterating, you're still going to be moving forward. So I'm not someone I, I would say um, that kind of gets um, stuck in the fact that, that things don't go to plan. I, I kind of excel in the ambiguity that, that life throws at us. And I think that's kind of why I enjoy my current role so much is because it's so agile and dynamic. And this really encapsulates the benefit of the mental model of fluid thinking. It's the ability to change your mind and change your perspective rapidly ducking and diving through iteration, starting small with our plans and then improving them as we go on. It's not pretending to have all the answers from the start, being locked into a rigid plan, but instead being small and flexible in how we achieve those precise goals. And in fact, it was this very ability to start small and be flexible that brought Kate to where she is today. It wasn't a direct route. I didn't have that light bulb moment and then immediately started working in CSR. In fact, I graduated in the role that I'd accepted. So kind of harking back to this expectation that I'd be working in the centre of London and I'd be, you know, on this amazing career trajectory. I worked for an events agency that planned conferences and I actually ended up staying there for four years, which is for a job I didn't want is pretty excessive. But it was because I enjoyed it and I got to travel and I saw the world and I worked with an incredible team. And I had really good fun. And so I did that. And so I wasn't really thinking about CSR necessarily, but it was what drove me to leave, which is this understanding that I felt like I could do more. I could have a bigger role and I could really use different elements of my interest and my knowledge better than than what I was doing. So that shows us that it's completely okay to be flexible in how we achieve these goals. Kate didn't take the direct route. And the writer, Robert Greene, has this great quote. He says, for writers, mistakes are material. But I think we can go one step further because experience is the material for our own lives and our own growth, much in the same way that for a writer, a mistake is something that they can talk about and illuminate for their readers. For us, the experiences that we have, those seemingly detours or obstacles we have to overcome or the long way round, actually ends up becoming the road to travel. 
And so those four years that Kate spent at an events company, they were far from wasted. They gave her valuable experience into what it is she really wanted to do. And when she was ready, when she had that question of how do I enact real change, then she could go and take her next step. With one of the projects Kate's involved in right now, real change means leading by example. Let's learn about the thinking behind her company's launch of Operation Upgrade. And this is an initiative that actually fed into the political manifestos of the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, and the Green Party during the previous UK elections. We're not talking about trying to impact the lives of a handful of people. This is trying to impact the lives of millions. What we released just before the election and that fed into the manifestos is Operation Upgrade, which is this legal test, essentially, which is asking companies to define their purpose. And once they've defined their purpose, they need to understand that they have a responsibility to consider stakeholder interests when making decisions and then to keep themselves accountable for that. So to annually write a report on their contribution towards their purpose and what they're doing, so an impact report. And so the big thing about this is that we think every business should be doing this. So we think it should be mandated for every business. And our proposal is the idea that actually, if we start doing that, if people start having to understand the impacts that they're having on people and planet, then behavior will start to change. So again, notice how just like Unilever, Project Upgrade locks companies into an annual impact report, not a short-term quarterly cycle, but this annual report allows for long-term thinking. And specifically, we can create these kind of long-term incentives in our own lives. And I quite like coupling this with reflection. Personally, if I'm stuck or I think that I'm anxious about how much, how little progress I've made in a week or maybe in a month, then I can look back at some of the journals that I've written from a year or two years or even three years ago and just see how my thinking's evolved. And it never fails to bring a smile to my face and being able to zoom out and actually take stock of the progress that I'm making. And more importantly is the accountability aspect here. With Project Upgrade, companies have to state their commitment. And we can do the same thing here by sharing what we want and specifically figuring out what's important to us and then telling a friend about our commitment. Having someone else know about our commitment and know about our defined goal with a definition of done, clearly defined, makes us much more likely to actually create that change. So figure out what's important to you and then state it. Because sharing what you want from your legacy can be a powerful way to hold yourself accountable. And what does Kate want her legacy to be? I hope I have chosen a career and pursued a career that I'll be proud of, that I can look back on and say, do you know what? I, I tried. I might not have succeeded, but I tried hard to make a difference and make a difference for other people rather than just myself. Aim to not just impact your life, but the lives of others too. And when it comes to success, the success itself really doesn't matter. It's the trying that counts. So let's review what we've learned here today. First is the mental model of fluid thinking. This means being flexible, agile, and iterating, and open to change our mind, but sticking to one central story or higher cause or purpose that we care about. In Kate's case, it was knowing that she wanted to create change but she was fluid in how she actually created that change. Because of how many unknown unknowns, 
there are out there, we have to be patient and trust in our ability to figure out challenges as they arise. Second is that we can address society's pretty common lack of reflection by being intentional in cooling down our communication, both with others and ourselves too. Consciously state your goals and be precise with your language because portraying the right facts with the right language in the right medium lets us find common points of relatability using shared values and context to humanize data. And finally is the power of thinking long-term. Having longer-term incentives and accountability, like Unilever's annual reporting instead of rigid quarterly targets, and knowing what our personal purpose and legacy will be like Project Upgrade encourages us to do, allows us to place bolder bets with more confidence. It's kind of life, isn't it? Like nothing's actually straightforward. Nothing's really black and white. We all need to understand that someone's perspective is their perspective and and my perspective is my perspective. And the data that you read somewhere else could be written in a different way and it could tell you a different story. So as soon as we start to understand that and those challenges that come with it, we can be a more aware person when you try and tackle different situations because you can ask more questions. Our perspectives are our own, but the stories we choose to tell ourselves is up to us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Subject Matter. You can subscribe to stay up to date on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. To stay in touch with Kate and follow her journey, you can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at KVSandle, S-A-N-D-L-E. Our big focus this season is making subject matter as relevant and practically useful for you as possible. Was there something you really enjoyed this episode? Or perhaps there was something you disagreed with? Whatever it is, we would love to hear from you. You can reach me directly via email at ben at benbradbury.com or you can reach me on Twitter at benbradbury underscore. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week for the next episode of Subject Matter.